afternoon and welcome to the Privacy Podcast brought to you by Buck Alter, a professional corporation, a law firm up and down the West Coast. I'm joined today by Matthew Soror, a shareholder from our Orange County office, Weiss Hamid, an associate from our Los Angeles office, and Carl Gerner, an associate from our Seattle office. My name is Daniel Zarchi. I'm your host, and I'm an associate from our San Francisco office. This, uh, the Privacy Podcast, is our new podcast. It'll be devoted to the data privacy and cybersecurity work that we do at Buckalter. Because this is our first episode, um, why don't we go around and make a few introductions and tell me a little bit about yourself, what you do outside of the privacy field, what you do in privacy, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. So uh, Matt, why don't you start? Thanks, Daniel. Um... Uh, as Daniel mentioned, my name is Matthew Soror. I'm a shareholder at Buckhalter uh, out of our uh, Orange County office. Um, I'm in the litigation department. Um, about 75% of my work is intellectual property litigation with a particular focus on uh, trademarks, copyrights, uh, uh, trade dress, trade secrets. Um, I also do uh, some work in the privacy area. At this point, uh, counseling lands on the CCPA other privacy related uh, comes, um, and getting them ready for the CCPA rollout um, and things of that nature. All right. Thanks, Weiss. Hi, uh, Weiss Amid. I'm in the LA office as an associate in the litigation department, primarily focusing on usually franchise litigation with some business contract disputes, the typical run-of-the-mill uh, litigation work. Uh, in addition to that, I also do uh, data privacy compliance related work, working on companies' uh, privacy policies. And then uh, additionally to that, I do data breach response. Uh, so I've ha had a number of cases where we would um, help clients, gui guide clients through the data breach notification issues. Thank you, and Carl? Thanks, Daniel. Um, yeah, I'm Carl Gerner. At associate in our Seattle office, um, certified in U.S. privacy law by the International Privacy Professionals Association, um, currently advise clients ranging from educational um, online service providers, uh, financial institutions, online retailers, auto manufacturers, uh, and gaming companies uh, related to privacy concerns. Um, you know, at the, at the moment, um, the CCPA looms large for, for most, most of our clients, um, but handle a large range of issues, whether those things come from um, educational privacy laws um, like FERPA to um, the intersection of GLBA with some of these new consumer privacy laws. All right, thank you, Carl. And my name is Daniel Zarchi, an associate in San Francisco. I am part of the litigation department, do primarily contract disputes, real estate, trademark litigation, things like that. And in privacy, uh, mostly focused on the California Consumer Privacy Act and CCPA compliance, working with in-house counsel, things like that. So today we are going to be talking about two major issues in the world of privacy. The first is a trend we've been noticing in litigation, a number of class action and other lawsuits brought against tech companies that allege violations of the California Consumer Privacy Act other than data breaches, and some of which that try to use the California unfair competition law as kind of an end around the lack of a private right of action in the CCPA. Um, after that, we're going to talk about the California Privacy Rights Act, which is a new ballot referendum on the California where that will probably make it to the California ballot in November and how that would amend the CCPA. 
So let's talk about these UCL complaints. In particular, we've noticed a bunch of class actions against companies like Zoom, which we are using to record this very podcast, and other tech companies that allege a lack of compliance with the CCPA that include causes of action for violation of the CCPA, again, not in a data breach context, and allege liability under the UCL. So Matt, uh, you had some thoughts on this. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Um, That is a trend that we're seeing. Um, We're seeing more lawsuits um, that are citing the CCPA, uh, sometimes directly, sometimes more indirectly. You mentioned the Zoom case. Uh, There's all uh, filed against Ring, and there's others as well. Um, And what's interesting about it is it does appear to be this, we'll call it an end around, around the uh, private right of action. Um, It'll be interesting to see what courts do with these. Um, There will no doubt be challenges on this basis. But we're also seeing, in addition to these UCL claims, these unfair competition claims, we're seeing uh, plaintiffs, again, and, and you're right, Daniel, these are primarily class actions. Plaintiffs are citing to the CCPA as setting forth Uh, some baseline obligations for defendants in terms of data security, data privacy, and then alleging negligence claims stemming off that. So using the CCPA as setting a, uh, you know, kind of a minimum standard and then breaches of that would support the negligence claim. So that's another way that we're seeing plaintiffs kind of try to shoehorn uh, these issues under the CCPA, given you know, the private right of action provisions of it. Again, these, these are all pretty early days. And in some sense, adjudication of these issues and challenges to these kind of UCL claims have been stalled a bit by the, uh, the COVID-related shutdowns, um, just because lawsuits can't really move forward at this point. But it's certainly something we're watching as, you know, as, as we kind of anticipated. Um, the plaintiff's bar uh, is being creative and using the CCPA in this way to try to, try to push, push these claims. Uh, yeah, so just taking a step back for those who aren't super clear regarding what the unfair competition law is, it's a statute that prohibits businesses from engaging in practices that are considered unlawful, unfair, or fraudulent. So for the uninitiated, for the CCPA, it gives a pretty specific uh, private right of action for data breaches, and that's it so far. There was an instance where I believe the attorney general in, you know, sponsored a bill or supported a bill that allowed for any breach of, or yeah, any breach of the CCPA would give you a private right of action, but that actually never, that amendment was never ratified, signed. So that's where where we stand right now. And what we're seeing is a lot of plaintiff's bar using the violation of a CCPA to be the unlawful act that gives rise for an unfair competition claim. Uh, The interesting thing about that is that, you know, the UCL has been used in the past when it comes to uh, violations of statutes that don't have a private right of action. But what they're trying to do now is using them for a statute that does give one, but not for the specific purpose that they're trying to use it for. So while we have seen courts ruling you know, regarding other statutes that are that remain silent on it, this is this is going to be an instance where they are now the plaintiffs' bar is now asking for a remedy that it seems like the CCPA explicitly does not give, but we're we're still at the early stages of all these litigations. Judges 
you know, we, we haven't, we have yet to see uh, any of these claims, whether or not they'll survive any kind of motion to dismiss or attack of the pleading. So it'll be a fascinating thing to go with. I mean, we all have our, we might all have our personal opinion on whether or not these will be successful, but at the end of the day, we'll, we'll see what these, we'll see what these courts say. Yeah. And something that we've seen a lot, for example, is UCL can be used to enlarge the statute of limitations on employment cases, for example. It's one of the well, uh, well-used uses of it is extending wage claims from three years to four years, things like that. And so those are situations in which, um, and just to back up, so California Labor Code says you're entitled to wages for three years, for example. Um, often plaintiffs' attorneys will bring a UCL claim saying that the unlawful act was not paying your employees everything they were owed, and therefore it expands to the four-year statute of limitations. And in many cases, that's been granted. So those are situations in which the UCL, the statute of limitations, does conflict with the labor code statute of limitations, but the longer one has been held held to apply. So as Weiss said, this is something where the first court of appeals that deals with this will set out a lot of law that will guide thousands and thousands of cases in this area. Clearly, we've seen a lot of members of the plaintiff's bar wanting to be the first or wanting to be among the first to file these actions and, and, get, and get in there. And it's interesting because, and as Weiss pointed out, you know, the CCPA speaks to this directly. This isn't a situation like with some other statutes where uh, the statute is just silent on this private right of action. And, you know, the plaintiff's bar will try to come in and, and say, well, no, it should apply. This, this right to sue should apply to the UCL. I've no doubt that, that the defendants, when, when, when these issues come up, will argue that there is no ambiguity. There is no question here that, that CCPA does speak to it. And therefore, that this expansion uh, of this private right of action, trying to get it under the UCL, is not what the legislator contemplated. It may come down actually just to a strict statutory construction uh, issue. But Daniel, you're right. I mean, the first court of appeal that 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 rules on this will will carry a lot of weight, and it'll be interesting to watch. Um, and, and and many people, both plaintiff side, defendant side, businesses, will be anxiously waiting when that uh, when that comes out. Yeah, and this is Weiss again. I do also want to point out that you know when it comes to the private right of action, the CCPA does have some language in there where it says. Uh, nothing in this title shall be interpreted to serve as the basis for a private right of action under any other law. I've already seen um, that being interpreted in different ways. Uh, I mean, I would think that that would mean that you shouldn't be, or that this wouldn't be allowed to be used for an unfair competition because that is another statute. But I've also seen this thing being interpreted more narrowly as you know, that this is very specific to, you know, you can't use the data breach private right of action and then try to tie in the unfair competition to just that action. So both sides are making creative arguments and we'll, I guess we'll just wait and see what, what the courts, what the courts end up deciding. Well, that, I think it's safe to say that these cases are some of the most important and in, impactful that we'll be watching to see how this law ends up being interpreted and will, because the private right of action would be incredibly huge and would create, would create compliance state, the likes of which the legislature probably did not anticipate or want. Whether the American people or the attorney general wanted it then are, are different questions. But I think as, as 
Matt and Weiss said the legislature's intent not to create a private right of action outside of data breaches was pretty clear. Thank you for that discussion, gentlemen. We're going to turn to one of the more impactful legislative differences or legislative changes in the privacy realm in California, and that is the California Privacy Rights Act of 2020. It's a new ballot referendum proposed by the Californians for Consumer Privacy, which is the same group that made the CCPA happen. For those of you, just to back up uh, for a little history, the CCPA was not an accident. The CCPA came about because this same group, Californians for Consumer Privacy, put together a ballot referendum that was supposed to be on the 2018 ballot. Uh, they got enough signatures to make it to the ballot and had enough popular support that it looked like it was almost certainly going to pass. And as a compromise with the California legislature, they pulled it in exchange for the legislature pushing through the CCPA basically overnight, or certainly a lot faster than most bills make it through the California legislature. That's part of the reason why they then spent the next year and a half amending it to try to fix everything that they, they weren't able to to figure out in, in the committee process. Uh, now the CPRA would amend the CCPA um, to create many differences, which we'll discuss in a second. And the Californians for Consumer Privacy say that they already have enough signatures to make the ballot and that recent polling says it would pass if it made it to the ballot. So this is something we need to take seriously. Carl, you had something you wanted to say about to introduce the CPRA, so passing it over to you. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. It is helpful to understand the history of how the CCPA was introduced and, and the, the quick turnaround to understand why there are so many efforts to amend and, and, and change the law. And I also think it's important to look at these bills, both the CCPA and the CPRA, or, or these laws anyway, in the, in the broader context that um, the, these laws reflect kind of a new standard for businesses and their, their executives about responsibility for understanding how businesses collect, use, and share information about individuals or their customers. That historically, it hasn't really been the role of every CEO or general counsel to understand how cookies and web beacons uh, help facilitate retargeting on social media and things like that. And what what these laws are trying to say is that no, it, it is the responsibility of, of the business, of the company um, that has a website to understand and be accountable for the stuff that's happening on your website. And, and that's a shift from just the way we've done things in the United States um, and that these, these statutes are trying to target. You know, with respect to the CPRA specifically, there are some good changes um, that offer a lot of clarity. There are some changes that introduce new burdens for specific businesses. And what I, what I think is, is going to be interesting to see is the reaction and, and the way businesses deal with the changing thresholds after, you know, just a year or two of the CCPA being in effect, shifting the thresholds around from which businesses these things apply to. I think those thresholds, the clarity will help a lot, but the, the changes, I, I'll be interested to see how businesses handle that. It also seems interesting because it seems like we're moving even closer towards a GDPR kind of rights, right? Like there's, they added some new rights that seem pretty close to the, to the EU, the European Union's GDPR. At least that's how I, that's how I was reading it. I'm, I'm not sure if you guys saw the same thing. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I think it does get us closer to the GDPR intentionally so, but yeah, I, th I think that's the idea 
behind the, the proponents of it. So just to go through some of the specific changes in the CPRA as opposed to the CCPA, it creates a new category of information called sensitive personal information. And the CCPA is largely based on control of personal information. So this would create a secondary category of sensitive personal information. It would allow California consumers to, um, to correct personal information held by companies. There are provisions to um, increase enforcement and penalties against misuse of children's data and create the California Privacy Protection Agency, which instead of um, simply being enforced by existing governmental agencies, it would create a new agency along with a $5 million fund from, uh, from the state to, uh, for enforcement purposes. Um, and it would, among some other changes, change the data breach liability and make it clear that release of information such as email and password, things like that, that would be considered a data breach. Still no, still no private right of action for just a general violation of the statute though, right? And that is an important clarification because, well, because it's all still limited to the state. Um, I know that one of the criticisms of the CCPA was just how much the attorney general actually will enforce the law, given that I think at the time, the budgeted amount that the AG was going to spend or, or going to have available was in the low uh, seven figures, plus anything that they end up earning in terms of fines or fees uh, from the companies that they prosecute. Creating this other agency with its own fund might give them a little bit more freedom to, to actually bring actions against some of the serial violators. In particular, some of the changes, like you mentioned, uh, are moving us closer to the GDPR. The right of correction is something that moves us, uh, in my opinion, a bit closer to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, where you can look at your credit report and correct any inaccuracies on it. But I think the existence of this bill and the fact that it would likely pass if it made it to the ballot suggests that the uh, Californians for Consumer Privacy are dissatisfied with the way the legislature amended, amended the CCPA prior to execution. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that, Daniel. I think whether, I think it expresses a, just a dissatisfaction from both sides, from maybe consumers don't quite understand how they would go about exercising the rights, but also from businesses who have have gotten caught up in what may not have been the intended scope of of the statute to begin with like like i said you know there are businesses that just operate websites and and try to sell uh their products through websites who have never had to worry about the ways that they're reaching their customers on social media before and now they're because of the thresholds that apply and the and the kind of convoluted definitions in some cases have to figure out this incredibly long new statute. You know, one, one thing that I'll also note is um, there's been a call, and I imagine this will be a growing call, um, for federal legislation um, on privacy-related matters. Uh, California is obviously, as it does in many things, takes the lead on this. Um, but I think this new, this new proposed legislation will just increase those uh, those voices uh, asking for you know a nationwide standard that um, is uniform uh, opposed to the piecemeal uh, system that we have now um, that we'll, we'll continue to have until there's federal legislation on a state-by-state -state basis so so that's something else to, to keep an eye on yeah I mean something that we've been seeing a lot is 
kind of an extension of what we saw with the GDPR, which is if you go on a lot of websites now, they have a privacy policy and they say, if you're European, read this. If you're Californian, read this. If you're none of the above, ignore that. Your rights are these. And, you know, it's creating more and more complex of a framework for companies that may not have very many Californian or European consumers, but they still need to comply with it because of the way these laws are written. So I agree, Matt. I mean, this we'll see if this gets any sort of national traction. Frankly, the fact that it was in California first with so much of uh, the tech industry here tells me that may, maybe it will, but that's something that we'll have to see. And actually, next time on this podcast, we'll be talking about some of the bills in Congress dealing with the privacy in the wake of uh, COVID and contact tracing and medical data that is being shared at a rate probably not anticipated or wanted by uh, administrators of things like HIPAA and other privacy acts. So I wouldn't be too surprised if we see some of the national federal COVID le- uh, COVID privacy legislation turn into pushes for consumer privacy uh, litigation on, or legislation on a national basis. Which will definitely be exacerbated if we see more states pass these sort of legislations as well. I know Washington had tried to do something that was not as extensive as uh, the CCPA, but um, while that I don't believe ended up passing through, I mean, you know, if, if New York or somewhere else generates a huge sweeping data privacy act that governs New York residents, then it might end up being necessary to have, a, have one uniform federal legislation. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true, Weiss. And, you know, the, the Washington Privacy Act, it failed here for, for the second year in a row. And while it didn't, um, it didn't contour, it didn't specifically, you know, copy the CCPA, it, it did introduce its own pretty burdensome obligations for businesses. Um, for, for some other GDPR-like requirements, including data, um, data privacy impact assessments um, and, and documenting how personal information is used throughout even product development. I purposely brought up Washington to get a rise out of Carl because I know he's based out of our Seattle office. Success. <laughs> well, the CPRA is going to be something we'll continue to track. And uh... I would say that there's at least a decent chance that rather than make it to the November ballot, they'll reach some sort of compromise with the California legislature. Again, I don't know how familiar you are with the California referendum process, but it's not the most efficient way to, uh, to legislate because you, if you want to amend it, even for tiny little things, you'll have to go through the referendum process again or get some ridiculous portion of the California legislature. So I think it's in everybody's best interest if just in terms of efficient legislation or efficient policymaking to do this through the legislation instead of the referendum process. But if the Californians for consumer privacy don't feel like they're being heard, then I wouldn't be too surprised if this doesn't actually make it to the ballot. And with that, thank you for listening to the inaugural episode of the Privacy Podcast brought to you by Buck Alter. And thank you to my guests today, Matthew Soror, Weiss Hamid and Carl Gurner. We'll be doing this podcast every other week or so, and you can find it on our feed at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may find podcasts. And we'll be expanding in the future and doing things like listener mail and whatever else there might be interest to. So thank you again for listening and hope to see you back here.